0: The British banned the trade in enslaved people from 1807, and they abolished enslavement altogether in 1833. Between the last World Wars, the story grew up that this had all been a grand expression of British moral superiority. But then, in 1938, a young Trinidadian historian, Eric Williams, argued that it had been nothing of the kind. The British only abolished enslavement, he said, because they couldn't make money out of it anymore. For many years, historians reckoned that Williams had got it right.
1: Now, last time, we saw that the British Empire had changed dramatically between 1756 and 1783. First, it had gained a large portion of India. But then, in 1776, the Americans had issued their Declaration of Independence and by 1783 had broken away and established the United States. Now, all this, as you can imagine, created a loud public debate about how the empire was being run. At first, in fact, it was a debate over the administration of India, but then it became a debate over the Caribbean islands. One result was the campaign to abolish enslavement. However, the loss of the American colonies had changed the whole situation in a much more profound way. Hello. Good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk, usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
0: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get
1: yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
0: begin to understand just how much the loss of the American colonies had changed the situation in the Caribbean, we need to get out a map. Historians are completely useless at using maps. They never seem to understand the importance of geography on the way people live their lives. Maybe it's because historians have traditionally fancied themselves as literate and arty, and geographers have thought of themselves as down-to-earth and sciency. Anyway, we should have a cup of coffee together more often.
1: So, let's go, let's go out a map of the Caribbean. There's, you'll find one on our website. Now what, you not, now, what you notice is that the British Caribbean stretch in a long arc. It starts in the southeast with Tobago, just off the coast of what's now Venezuela, and then it curves round to the north with Barbados and Antigua, among other islands, before you come round westwards, you bump into Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba, none of which were ever British. Then, finally... Finally, you reach Jamaica, which is the largest of the British islands, which is just south of Cuba. The Bahamas are away to the north, not part of this story, because they never have more than a few slaves. Trinidad on the far southern end of the curve, and also the British South American colony of Guyana, were added in 1814.
0: So the sugar islands where enslavement was established stretch in a 2,400 kilometre curve from off the coast of Venezuela to off the coast of Cuba, with the largest island, Jamaica, sitting rather isolated from the rest, far to the north and west. Well, now we need to map in the winds, because of course, that's how everyone got around in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Look up any sailing website and you discover that you can cross the Atlantic even in a relatively small boat, in three or four weeks, by using the trade winds. These blow consistently westwards, at about 15 to 25 knots, from the northwest coast of Africa over to the more southern end of that curve of formerly British islands. How convenient! Even if you were sailing from British ports, you would take this route, since the trade winds further north blow eastwards in your face. That's the way you'll sail home. Now, obviously, if you're collecting slaves from Africa on the way to the Caribbean, then you'd go further south still, pick up the slaves and then cross on the trade winds like everyone else always has.
1: Now, all this geography affects everything about the Caribbean. The islands down at the south, the bottom end of the curve, are called the Windward Islands because they are where the wind is coming from. That's where you arrive. And then you make your way up, tacking easily across the trade wind, even finding some winds blowing northward to the islands further north. They're known as the Leeward Islands because they're on the lee side away from the wind. All right, if you're a sailor, you call it Leeward, even if you still spell it (laughs) L-W-E-W-A-R-D. Finally, you run in front of the wind over to Jamaica.
0: So although Jamaica was much the largest of the islands, it was also the most difficult to get to. If you were following the winds, you usually only arrived there after passing all the other islands first. And during a war, and Britain was often at war, you'd also have to run the gauntlet of sailing past French Saint-Domingue, which is now the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and Spanish-held Puerto Rico and Cuba. Well, all this meant that prices, for example, for enslaved peoples or goods coming from Britain, were much higher on Jamaica because they'd had to travel a good couple of weeks longer to get there. It also meant that everyone else got to have their pick of slaves and goods first.
1: But you see, until 1776, none of this mattered because of course Britain still possessed a string of fine and prosperous colonies further north from Florida, which was captured in 1763, before that Georgia up to New England. In fact, if you widen your map, what you what you see is that Jamaica is the perfect hinge between the British islands to the south and British colonies on the northern mainland. So most of the food and supplies that the sugar planters use for themselves or their enslaved workers in fact came from North America. Almost all their oats, corn, peas, butter, cheese, onions, horses, pigs, poultry, soap, timber, candles. It was all so easy, so convenient that the sugar planters barely bothered to leave land to grow food for themselves. Used all for cash crops, and especially the sugar that their enslaved workpeople were forced to cultivate.
0: Until the American War of Independence, in fact, almost all the ships that were sailing around the Atlantic with British cargoes were also built in America. It was because the timber there was extremely plentiful and cheap. So you see, the whole exploitative and cruel Atlantic system worked like clockwork. You had the wind blowing you across the Atlantic with a cargo of enslaved men, women and children from Africa to the Windward Islands and then around the curve and up to Jamaica and perhaps then with a bit of tacking into the northerlies but helped by the coastal currents on to the North American colonies and finally back home east to Britain with a load of sugar, coffee, tobacco, cotton and other North American raw materials. How convenient! Historians have always called it the triangular trade, even though uh, Britain, Britain, Africa, Africa Caribbean, Caribbean, North America. It had four corners. Four corners yeah. hmm. Told you historians were hopeless with maps. Actually, in practice, many ships just did parts of the whole trip, not the whole four sided triangle. But then,
1: in the War of American Independence from 1776 to 83, Britain lost all of her North American colonies. Well, from Florida up to New England anyway. Of course, during the war, the British Caribbean islands were banned from trading with the colonial rebels. Prices on the islands shot up. Everything from peas to beef had to be brought all the way from Britain. Literally thousands of the enslaved died from malnutrition. In course of the war, in fact, enslaved numbers on Barbados, to take one example, fell from 79,000 to 62,000.
0: 17,000 died?
1: Out of 79, yeah the planters also found that they couldn't any longer sell their rum to the American colonists and that there was no other market for it, so prices collapsed.
0: Now, for the wealthy planters, you might imagine that this might all be inconvenient, but not a long-term disaster. After all, surely once peace was signed in 1783, they could just go back to trading with the newly independent North Americans as before, wouldn't they? Well, the thing is, that's exactly what they could not do. Arunge!
1: Arunge, marunna! Arunge, marunna! Arunge, marunna! Arunge, arunge
0: marunna! Arunge, arunge, arunge. When Britain's North American colonies broke away and set themselves up as the United States, it was a disaster for Britain's Caribbean islands because they'd always bought almost all of their food and supplies from the North American mainland and traded in American-built ships and sold some of their rum and sugar there. Of course, after the British lost the war with the Americans, the planters pleaded to be allowed to trade with the new United States exactly as before. But the British government... Flatly refused to let them. The problem was that Britain's
1: foreign and commercial policy had always been built on the fundamental idea that Britain's colonies could only trade with Britain or with other British colonies and only in British ships. It was a system known as the navigation laws and those laws now banned the British Caribbean islands from trading with the North Americans or in American ships because the new United States was now a foreign country. Well, it left the British West Indies stranded thousands of miles from supplies of food and manufactures, and having to trade in expensively built British ships from the other side of the Atlantic or even built in India. And because of the way the winds blew, Jamaica, the biggest and most vociferous of all the British West Indian Islands, was now very much the most stranded of all.
0: So instead of being the hinge, it was now just left out on its own. Left out on its own, exactly. The irony is that the West Indies planters had always been the loudest supporters of these restrictive navigation laws. And the reason was very simple. The French island of Saint-Domingue, which is now Dominica and Haiti, was producing more sugar than all of the British West Indies put together. And without much of the brutality the British employed, it was producing it more cheaply. It's worth saying that again. Saint-Domingue was producing more sugar than
1: all of the British West Indies put together And without much of brutality, and producing it more cheaply puts it all in context, doesn't it? Hmm.
0: So, if you scrapped the navigation laws, then British sugar would be priced straight out of the market. Everybody in Britain would immediately buy French sugar. From Saint-Domingue.
1: So, after the American War, what the planters wanted was that the navigation laws should apply, as they always had done, to anything they sold... Since that kept their prices up, they would be able to sell sugar to British consumers who couldn't buy anywhere else. But now, of course, they didn't want the navigation laws to apply to anything they bought. They so can Brit- eat it? So British consumers would only be able to buy expensive British sugar, but the West Indies planters could buy their shipping and supplies cheaply from the Americans or whoever they wanted.
0: Now, there had been days when the West Indian planters would have got away with something like this.
1: Friends in government, you can get away with anything. That's what
0: it's it's like in Britain. As we've seen, in good years, the Caribbean trade as a whole was worth 10% of Britain's GDP. But by the 1780s, that didn't cut much ice anymore. The Caribbean was no longer the centre of the empire. And the reason for that, as we saw in our last discussion, was the British Empire's huge recent expansion into India trade with India was already enormous.
1: Okay, there are loads of statistics. You don't need to worry about the details. It's been calculated, for example, that between 1750 and 1781 the East India Company, which had the monopoly of trade to India, had paid £36 million in customs and excise duties. That's over 11% of total government revenue. In some years they were paying about a third of
0: all customs duties. (laughs) Okay, what all this means is that India was financially keeping Britain afloat. Imports from India also included a very superior grade of saltpeter, that gave English gunpowder and therefore cannon a significant edge in warfare. But there's a more important point, a political point. The East India Trade was being run by a private company, the East India Company. They had their own private navy, the Bombay Marine, to protect their trade. They administered the British settlements in Bengal and other parts of India. From 1793, the East India Company was even paying the British government an annual subsidy of 400000 just to be allowed to keep its monopoly.
1: The West Indies, by contrast, were costing the British government steeply to retain. Long, long ago, 1973, historian Philip Quaylor calculated that the protection of Caribbean trade and administering the islands was costing the British government over a million pounds a year. That's over 10% of government revenues. As despite slapping massive duties, import duties on the West Indies sugars, which didn't come close to paying for the costs and simply pushed up the price of sugar in Britain way above the international rate. So while the planters made private fortunes, British consumers and, more important, the British government was, for much of this time, heavily out of pocket.
0: There was something else besides. If you wanted to negotiate with the West Indies planters, you had to deal with the planters' assembly on Jamaica a little local planters' parliament. But you also had to deal with the assembly in Barbados, and another one in Grenada, and another in St Kitts, and others in all of the other older island colonies. And they had a long and well-earned reputation for being difficult. In fact, for much of the period before the war with America, the West Indian planters' assemblies had been muttering about joining the American rebels if the British didn't give them what they wanted.
1: By contrast, the Indian Empire was run by a single company, the East India Company. And that company was easy to bully. The latest East India Act of 1784 gave the government much more control. And then the company's charter was up for renewal in 1793. And then again in 1813. And again in 1833. And each time the British government could and did dictate terms and take more control and more money. Just like the BBC,
0: really. So, of course, however much the empire was theoretically being run as a single unit East and West, with goods from India being sold across the Atlantic, in practice, the British government was increasingly running its imperial policy to suit the East Indian trade and not the West Indian. So, the days when the West Indians could get away with whatever they wanted were over. And-
1: The loss of the American colonies in the American War of Independence had changed all the rules for the West Indian planters. It had cut off their supply of cheap food, cheap supplies and shipping. It had also shifted the centre of gravity in the British Empire towards India. The Atlantic colonies continued to be an important market, but political decisions were increasingly now being made to suit the East Indies and not the West.
0: On the 2nd of July, 1783, two months even before the peace was signed to end the war with America, France and Spain, the British government passed an order in council. It made it clear that after the war, the West Indies would not be permitted to trade with the new North American states, except in a limited number of commodities and only in British ships. The planters were said to be thunderstruck. Of course, the islanders began smuggling in American goods right away. In December 1784, the Royal Navy seized four American merchantmen, ships, smuggling off Nevis. The local merchants furiously took the young naval lieutenant responsible to court and he couldn't come ashore for three months for fear of the mob, which was tough because he was engaged to an island girl. His name was Horatio Nelson and he won the court case. And he also married the girl. More about him later. The island sent petitions to London and their agents pleaded with the government. But between 1786 and 1788, the ban on trading with the Americans was tightened even further. Now
1: you remember from last time that in the 1780s, the British West Indies were also hit with a series of devastating hurricanes. So it's no wonder at all that with the loss of the American colonies, the British West Indies islands were in economic trouble. According to historian Selwyn Carrington, the number of enslaved on the islands now dropped significantly. Sugar imports to Britain also fell, barely recovering to pre-war levels by 1788 and then falling again. But that wasn't all. In the British Parliament, the West Indian planters had traditionally always aligned politically with the Whigs. And the Whigs had dominated British politics since 1715. But in 1783, the Whigs were thrown out. Uh, Let's not get into all the dull party politics, but on the 19th of December, just before Christmas, 1783, the king, George III, much underrated politician, summoned the 24-year-old William Pitt and told him to form a government. Uh, Pitt avoided all party labels, but he certainly wasn't a Whig, and in retrospect his ministry marked the beginning of something that would eventually evolve into the modern Tory party.
0: Well, the Whigs laughed at this new government and called it the Mince Pie Administration because they didn't believe it would last beyond Christmas. Pitt was defeated twice in Parliament on his first day and over and over in the months that followed. But he held on. And in March 1784, he called an election and won with a landslide. His ministry would last, in fact, just a single break of three years until his death in 1806. Some Mince Pie... Now, this is where the politics gets to matter in our story. You see, Pitt's own family fortunes came from trade with India, not the West Indies. And Pitt had a close friend and contemporary from Cambridge who was now also an MP who was also more interested in India than the West Indies. His name... was
1: William Wilberforce.
0: Now, why do we always think of Wilberforce as an old man? In 1783, he was just 25 years old, a year older than his mate Pitt, the new Prime Minister. Now, put all this together...
1: Not only was the economy of the West Indies now looking very uncertain, its political influence was also collapsing. And that meant that enslavement, which for decades had been regarded as an evil, if necessary, institution, was at last something that could be openly discussed in Parliament. As long as America was ours, wrote the abolitionist Thomas Clarkson, there was no chance that a minister would have attended to the groans of the sons and daughters of Africa, however he might feel for their distress. Well, by the 1780s, ministers were certainly hearing the groans of the African sons and daughters.
0: And dig a bit further and you unearth something else, something most historians of enslavement and abolition have generally ignored. What motivated many of those opposed to the West Indies planters was not really enslavement at all. It was religion. In the 1730s, there had been something of a religious revival in the Caribbean. The Anglicans set up the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in 1701, the SPG, which still exists today, and they sent hundreds of missionaries to the islands. But they weren't much interested in preaching to the enslaved, only to the planters. It was the Quakers who'd been the first missionaries to the enslaved, followed by Baptists and Presbyterians and later Methodists, and a German sect known as the Moravians. Most of the people sitting in these new churches on a Sunday were black. Their kind of free-moving, more emotional religion matched much better with the Africans' own religions than that of the Church of England.
1: What's striking about the white planters on the islands, unlike many of those on the North American mainland, is that they bitterly opposed these churches. They in fact also opposed the Anglicans as well, by the 1760s, hardly any of the planters or any other white inhabitants of the British Caribbean were going to church at all. Now, the thing is that this was very unusual for 18th century Britain or her empire. One clergyman reported from the West Indies in the 1760s and 1770s that it was, quotes, a kind of fashion there not to go to church. Now, this was the Reverend James Ramsey, who'd first arrived in the West Indies as a naval surgeon aboard HMS Arundel. We've come across him before. He came to the conclusion that the government would have to do something about the lack of religion on the islands. Well, sure thing, you say. But the important thing about Ramsay is that he had some very influential friends.
0: By the 1780s, the British West Indies were increasingly isolated. They'd lost their connection with the British colonies in North America. Their Whig friends in Britain had been thrown out of government. And questions were now being raised about exactly why the West Indies planters, pretty much uniquely in British imperial society in the 1780s, were so opposed to Christianity. James Ramsay was a Church of England clergyman who'd arrived in the West Indies as a naval surgeon. We've come across him before. He was the surgeon aboard HMS Arundel who boarded a slave ship Swift and was appalled by what he found. When his time in the Navy was over, Ramsay became a clergyman setting out explicitly to work among the enslaved. Now, this is where
1: everything begins to connect up. Because, you see, James Ramsay's captain aboard HMS Arundel had been Charles Middleton. And we've come across him before, too. When he retired from the Navy, Charles and his wife, Margaret Middleton, moved to share the house of her friend Elizabeth Bouverie at Teston in Kent. And you remember from our last discussion that it was the Teston Circle, and in particular Margaret Middleton, who by the late 1780s were playing a key role in coordinating the campaign for abolition. In 1782, in fact, the Middletons had arranged for James Ramsey to be appointed the vicar of their local church. And it was using Ramsey's shocking experiences in the islands that the Teston Circle first began its campaign to abolish the slave trade. Ramsey was a tough, unsentimental ex-Navy surgeon, and he'd seen plenty. Now the Middletons and their influential friends at Teston helped him write a
0: series of hard-hitting books, which a Quaker printer then published. Now, what all this tells us is that the main driving force for this circle of abolitionists at Teston was not political or economic, but religious. Their frustration was not so much with enslavement itself as that the planters refused to allow their enslaved workpeople to go to church or to hear the gospel. Well, the planters tried to swat all of this aside. They brought out their own pamphlets attacking James Ramsey and his books. In most circumstances, this might all have been just a footnote to this whole story. But as we've already begun to see, Anglicans like Ramsay had some very influential backers. You see, behind the scenes,
1: there was a deep and growing divide between what was going on in the West Indies and what was happening in India. Let me take you back to 1776. A young white girl dies of smallpox in what was then Calcutta. Nine days later, her sister dies too. Now, their father is Charles Grant, who is secretary of the local board of trade, quite a senior local position in the East India Company. you recall that this time it was the East India Company that was governing British India. Now, Charles Grant was a drinking, gambling man, but shocked by the loss of his children, he experienced a religious conversion, turning his existing rather conventional Presbyterianism into something much more born-again. Grant began not only to rise through the ranks of the East India Company, but also to set up missions and to encourage the conversion of the local people. In 1787, he was writing to the Archbishop of Canterbury and a number of other leading English church people, including William Wilberforce, about his schemes. In fact, Wilberforce had already been involved in schemes to send missionaries to India. In 1790, Grant returns from India for good, gets together with Wilberforce, and by 1791, the two of them are meeting up with Prime Minister Pitt and with Henry Dundas, who's another relation of the Middletons, he would soon be Pitt's man running India. In 1794, Grant settles in Clapham next door to William Wilberforce, and together they go along to Holy Trinity Clapham, which still stands out on Clapham Common and still has an evangelical born-again Anglican congregation. Now, why are we going on about all this? Stuff? It doesn't matter.
0: Now, all this really matters much more than you might at first imagine. The historian Gareth Atkins' book, Converting Britannia, published in 2019, for the first time uncovered the extent of the influence of Anglican evangelicals like Grant and Wilberforce in the East India Company. Atkins doesn't make the connection with the abolition of slavery, but it is clearly central. The point is that while the West Indies planters and their assemblies were actively, shockingly as we shall see, obstructing Christian missionaries in the West Indies, the East India Company was increasingly influenced by born-again Anglicans at every level. Grant and Wilberforce tried to get a so-called pious clause inserted in the new East India Company charter in 1793. It would have forced the company officially to back Anglican missions in India. When the company charter was again renewed in 1813, the pious Clause was successfully inserted. By then, Charles Grant was chairman of the East India Company. And now the government began to build and pay for new churches in India. Bibles and prayer books were issued to any soldier who could read. Now, this is
1: part of something even bigger. What Atkins' book shows, and it's a great book, is that this coterie of born-again evangelical Ankins, often centred on that church, Holy Trinity in Clapham, developed a quite astonishing network of contacts throughout the empire. They had their people in the army and the Royal Navy, in the colonial office, in the post office, in the Bank of England. They had their people in Newfoundland, in West Africa, in the Cape, in Australia in New Zealand, where they produced Bibles in Maori, in Malta, Turkey, Persia, Abyssinia, Egypt, Mauritius, Ceylon and, of course, in India, and especially through the East India Company. They had connections with leading industrialists and
0: philanthropists like Josiah Wedgwood and Richard Arkwright and Samuel Whitbread. They had enormous influence in Parliament. Increasingly, in the decades from the 1780s onwards, Anglican evangelicals seemed to be everywhere in government. But there was, of course, Just one glaring exception.
1: The British West Indies' planters' opposition to the churches cost them very badly, and especially among the evangelical Anglicans, who were now spreading their influence into every corner of government and empire. In fact, by the 1800s, the West Indies was getting to be just about the only part of the empire where the evangelicals were kept out. Historian Gareth Atkins writes, The colonial office, which was itself an evangelical outpost, of course, fought constant battles with recalcitrant West Indian assemblies. But as we shall see, the influential planters and even many of the clergy in West Indian parishes still refused to have anything to do with these evangelicals and their pious desire to preach to the enslaved.
0: Well, for the planters, this was all a catastrophic political blunder because the evangelicals had contacts everywhere, and especially with the Prime Minister, William Pitt, and in the East India Company. In what was rapidly becoming a competition for economic and political influence between the West Indies and the East Indies, it was completely obvious which side these very powerful evangelicals would be on. And of course, the abolition of slavery was an issue, perhaps the issue on which the evangelicals were most loudly and powerfully active. Historian Christopher Brown has argued that the evangelicals had always been rather socially unacceptable, at least in polite circles, until... discovered abolition. He claims, in fact, that the campaign against enslavement appealed to them not only because it was obviously just, but precisely because it made them and their evangelical faith, which is what mattered, suddenly rather more socially popular. Well, that might strike you as overly cynical, but what you can say is that if the planters were looking to keep their slaves... Their attitude towards the churches made it absolutely certain that they would have fewer and fewer backers among any of the people who were pulling the strings back in Britain and in the rest of the empire. From the 1780s,
1: the influence of the West Indies' planters in London was ebbing away quickly. Their plantations still mattered, but they were no longer the heart of the empire in the way they had been. India was quickly becoming much more important. Just as important was the loss of the West Indian planters' political clout, especially in the face of the rise and rise of a well-connected East India company. The planters' friends, the Whigs, were out of government. The loss of the American colonies had made a moral debate about enslavement not only possible but urgent. And now the evangelical Anglicans had come in behind it and they were fast becoming a truly formidable political force.
0: But... Yes, but this still begs the question of why the slave trade, the enslavement and shipment of newly enslaved people, was eventually banned when it was in 1807. The West Indies' planter's political and economic clout was clearly falling sharply from the 1780s. So all the things we've been talking about in this discussion are what you might call the long-term underlying causes. Why things only come to a crisis in 1807 is what we need to find out. And for that, we have to begin to understand
1: what was happening in the 1790s. In 1789, the French Revolution had broken out and war between Britain and revolutionary France soon followed. The French Revolution had also sparked a spectacular revolt among the enslaved of French Saint-Domingue. That, you remember, is the island which was producing more sugar than the whole of the British West Indies put together. The revolt ended with the establishment of the first ever ex-enslaved Black Caribbean Republic when Haiti was recognised on the 1st of January 1804. Extraordinary moment.
0: Extraordinary Now, in these circumstances, the British government, which was anyway never likely to give in to moral pressure, never has done, never will, was even less inclined to stir up trouble in the Caribbean by tackling the issue of enslavement. In fact, the government of Wilberforce's friend William Pitt was now quietly buying slaves for itself and turning them into soldiers to fight against the French in the Caribbean. 13,400 of them. They were, of course, promised their freedom when the war was over. Oh, yes. In practice, when the war ended, they were transformed from slaves into regular soldiers who the government claimed had technically volunteered. And soldiers,
1: of course, who volunteered could be retained indefinitely.
0: Oh, what a surprise. So those who didn't die or run away were still being forced to serve in the British army in the 1820s, despite being promised their freedom. But of course, back in the 1790s, this ready supply of soldiers in a war against France meant that Pitt's government was in even less of a hurry to end enslavement.
1: The abolitionists had plenty of popular support and influential friends behind the scenes, but their campaign stuttered on through the 1790s and achieved nothing. In the end, even the petition stopped. So the question is, what changed by 1807? You see, this is right in the middle of a new war with France, which had restarted in 1804. Why upset things in the Caribbean now? Well, we've argued all along that however powerful and influential moral campaigns might be, nothing ever changes until the politics, and above all the economics, make it necessary. Which brings us to the biggest question of them all. As we've seen, the Trinidadian historian Eric Williams claimed many years ago that the real reason the British abolished the trade in slaves when they did in 1807 was because by then the trade wasn't making money anymore. As Williams put it, quotes, the decisive forces are the developing economic forces. Politicians, he said, always talk in public about high morals. But what they're talking about in private is always, quotes, something you can touch and see to be measured in pounds sterling in dollars and cents.
0: So, was the enslaved economy of the Caribbean, was it or was it not, making money by 1807? The stage is set. Enter the man who has claimed that pretty much everything Eric Williams ever wrote was wrong. Enter Seymour Drescher. (laughs) As we'll discover in our next discussion at the History Café about the ending of British enslavement.
1: For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod.